Um, good evening, my name is Timothy Walker, I'm the director of the Town Garden. For those of you who have not been before, it's a great pleasure to see you here. Um, and it's my pleasure uh, this week uh, to introduce the person who's organised this series of lectures, um, which is Alison Foster, who arrived uh, in Oxford eons ago as an undergraduate. Um, but not the sort of person who we would have mixed with because she was a chemist then. And she came out from the dark side of, of, of science, um, or as we refer to it in Italian, the culinary side. Because um, that essentially is what chemistry is. And um, Joanna's going to see me later. Um, so, um, and uh, obviously she didn't realise that, that chemistry had no future. And uh, uh, it has um, got better things to do with your life. And she wants to train as gardeners. And uh, we welcomed her arms uh, as one of our trainees. And um, <laughs> and um, delighted we kept her because um, about uh, oh, uh, a number of months ago we started uh, looking around for money to redo our collection of medicinal plants and uh, various people gave us money and uh, one of those was the Welcome Trust and part of the Welcome Trust bid uh, was to uh, write uh, an account of the role of plants in medicine today, clinical stuff, serious science. And uh, we already had somebody good writing for us, so we kept all that. Then um, various members of staff got pregnant, and so uh, Alice has been with us on maternity club. And uh, it's tremendous to welcome her this evening to, um, to talk about what she's been doing, I think. I should point out um, that um, we're staggering into the 21st century here tonight. Um, this is a bit of a toe in the water for us. Uh, this uh, lecture is going to be recorded for a podcast. Um, which has nothing to do with the fat AC, apparently. Um, and uh, so when you listen to it, you have to sit where you are, because that's where you are on the um, And you can have to press record now. I've already started. <laughs> Thank you very much, I think, for the introduction. Um, as Timothy said, I started my life as a chemist and I'm now a gardener, so hopefully tonight I'll be able to show you why I think both those subjects are important um, for all our lives. Um, so just over a year ago, in September last year, I started looking into the planning of this medicinal, new medicinal plants collection for the garden. Um, and so what I'm going to do tonight is tell you about the process that we went through, how we decided um, to plan the, the area, what plants we decided to put in, how we chose them, how we grouped them show you how the works progress, and then tell you a few stories about some of the plants that are on the beds um, that are now out there in the, in the garden. So for anyone who hasn't um, been beyond the walls, um, Botanic Garden uh, is shown is here, and we're in this building at the moment. Um, and this area here is the area devoted now to our new medicinal plant collection. Um, before, uh, until early this year, it was the economic quarter. Um, and so it had a wide range of economically important plants in it. But the area um, had a different layout to the rest of the wall garden. And so we, we decided to make it uh, fit better with the rest of the wall garden. So the layout is now uh, changed from what it was. And we've also lost uh, the, the functional area that was in this corner here, the mower shed, and so the area for planting has been expanded. What I should say is that although this um, medicinal plant collection heavily is focused on this quarter here, there are medicinally important plants all over the garden. Um, there's some in the glass houses, there's some to be found in the rest of the wall garden and also the lower garden, and also at the arboretum. And we've got a new trail leaflet, the garden leaflet has the maps on the garden and the arboretum, and it has now got a medicinal plant trail for the garden and one for the arboretum. So if you haven't been to the arboretum recently, then you should definitely go out there and, and follow the trail around and look at the new areas of the, of the arboretum. So, uh, the garden started in 1621 as a physic garden, so it was obviously important then, almost 400 years ago, um, that, that plants were used as medicines. In fact, most medicines were from plants. That, that was all, all that was known. Um, and, and the garden was there to provide the plants for the, the physicians at the university. It wasn't until almost 200 years later, in the early 1800s, that the first pharmacologically active 
um, pure compound was isolated and purified from a plant source, and that was morphine. And really, from the early 1800s, then the science of, of pharmaceutical chemistry started. Um, and, and over the next 200 years or so, plants have become increasingly important as drugs. But people have now begun to forget just how important um, plants are to the modern medicines that we all take. People mainly think, I, I believe, about plants just being part of herbal remedies and not necessarily proven, proven efficacy. But actually, lots of our really important and clinically proven modern medicines um, owe their existence to plants. So when the garden uh, was originally planted, we, we know that, uh, what kinds of plants were in, uh, were in the garden because of, we have this amazing catalogue here from 1648. Now, not every single plant in the botanic garden at the time was there for its medicinal activity. There was several yew trees planted to add structure for, for their beauty and because they were you know, a favourite tree to have. Um, but at the time, they weren't, it wasn't known that the yew tree could have any important medicinal effects. And you'll see later on in the talk just how important um, the yew tree is to, to one particular um, anti-cancer drug. And it's important to say at this point as well that only well, less than 15% of all higher plants have been investigated for their biological activity. And when we think about how little was known in the 1640s about medicinal plants, we still haven't advanced all that much. And we really don't know what else is out there to be found. You know, today, we now know how, just how important the yew tree is, but we haven't yet found out how important maybe some of the other plants that, that we have grown in the world are. And it's essential for us to conserve as much biodiversity as possible partly for, for this reason, for many other reasons as well. Just to reinforce the point, this is our oldest tree, um, passed in 1645, I believe-ish, certainly in existence then, um, and our, our last remaining old yew tree example in the garden. So then I started thinking, um, there's all these potential plants out there that we want to grow in this medicinal area. How are we going to group them? Taxonomy is always one of those things that you have to think about when you're working with plants. So what system shall we, shall we go with? If we want to group these plants into beds, do we want to group them based on their geographic origin? Do we want to uh, group them based on when the drug was discovered, when the, the compound was isolated from the plant, how they work in the body? You know, which, which system should we go for? Um, and in the end, I realised there's no point reinventing the wheel. So we should use a system that's already out there and working. So the World Health Organization has this classification system called the Anatomical Therapeutic Chemical Classification System. Really catchy. Uh, <laughs> and basically, each drug that's used in hospitals or in research is given a, a classification based on this system. And the top level of it is, is a letter. And it's based on which system of the body the drug affects, which um, system of the body the drug exerts its, its biological activity on. Now, some drugs will work on multiple systems, and so they could have multiple classifications. So we took that into account and then tried to work out which groups of plants would go best together, what space we had available. Obviously in the area, as you'll see, there's tree canopy to be considered aspect a little bit, and different, different sizes of beds, so we needed to fit the plants together in sensible groups as well. So sometimes it may seem that we chose an arbitrary bed, an arbitrary grouping for the plant. It has, it's valid that it's there, it could equally have been placed somewhere else and maybe in the future, depending on the successes and failures of the plants we grow, we might choose to grow them somewhere else. And some of the plants do have duplications if it's very important that they're used for, as a drug for two totally different indications, then the plant may be found twice within the area. So these are the eight beds, the eight groupings of plants that we, we've settled upon. And we tried to give them names that would mean something in a hospital setting to people. Um, 
So we have cardiology, oncology, infectious diseases, gastroenterology, dermatology, hematology, neurology, and pulmonology. Now, it is a bit of a mouthful, and in the same way that on all the other family beds, we have the family name, so Euphorbiaceae, and then in brackets underneath, we have a more kind of layman's terms name for it, Spurge family, for instance. We've, we've gone for that same kind of system here. So what kind of plants did we want to choose? Well, broadly speaking, the plants we chose fall into three groupings here. Plants that you can directly extract the active drug from, um, that requires no further modification, it just needs to be purified away from the rest of the plant material, and then it's used to, in, a, in a hospital setting or in a home setting. Or where the molecule is extracted and then acts as a kind of advanced intermediate. Um, and it's then con converted in a few chemical steps synthetically to the act active drug. And finally, there's a group of plants where there's been a natural product or a, a molecule isolated from those plants, and that has led to the whole start of the drug discovery program. Um, so we, the molecule isolated from that plant may not be directly a drug, but if it wasn't for that piece of research being done, the eventual drug wouldn't have come into existence. And we'll see examples of each of these later on. We also had to bear in mind at this point what kinds of plants we could actually grow outside here in the Botanic Garden. Um, so most of the plants I'm talking about tonight are the ones that we have growing outside. There's a few examples of plants that we've added to our glasshouse collection. That is where I'm working at the moment, after all. Um, so we can't leave that out completely. Um, and, uh, and one of the other considerations was just what kind of balance of plants are we going to have in terms of perennials and annuals and biennials. Now, it obviously increases the workload of, of the practical staff to have a huge number of annuals. But by the very nature of some of these plants, they're grown as crops for extraction of medicines. They are annuals, a lot of them. So we have included annuals where it's appropriate. So it will be that during the winter months, maybe you don't see as many of these plants as during the summer. That, that's something we've had to live with. And so, finally, from September through to February, I was in the office working away on this planning. And then, after all the snow had pretty much gone, the work started. So, I don't know if anyone can re remember back to February. Uh, and uh, <laughs> seems like a long time ago to me. Um, and this is our old mower shed. And obviously that needed to go. You can see here the layout of the area was very different to the long, uh, narrow beds of, of all the family beds in the rest of the garden. So that was the morning <coughs> where it started. And then the diggers moved in and they were getting ready to uh, demolish the shed. And then when I went back a couple of days later to take some more photos, that was gone. Um, by March the 3rd, lots of the plants have been dug up, and you begin to think, wow, this really is happening now. I better, you know, get on with it. Um, so you can see lots of the plants have been taken out. Um, you're beginning to get an appreciation for just how big the area actually is. And by a week later, I kind of stood there thinking, oh my word, <laughs> there's just this huge sea of mud. <laughs> How is that ever going to become a garden, you know, again? But I realised at this point, actually, just how important the soil is to the botanic garden. <coughs> you know, we, once it's covered up with grass and beds and plants are all growing beautifully, you, you know, it is easy to forget, you know, that is really the lifeblood of the garden. And if it wasn't for the soil, we wouldn't be able to grow all the amazing plants. But actually, the soil is a really important source of of bacteria and bacteria that produce medicinally important compounds like antibiotics and anti-cancer compounds. And next week's talk um, this time is going to be by a gentleman who spent his life working with microbes, um, in particular streptomyces from the soil and um, discovering new antibiotics. He actually started life as a botanist, so um, yes, well welcome. So by March 16th, the sun actually started to shine and we thought maybe spring will happen. 
Um, and I should say here a great thank you to the team from the University of Parks who were contracted to come and, uh, and double dig all the beds. So the beds were marked out, and Aaron, Chris, and Richard commenced this what seemed like a mammoth task of double digging all these beds. But by April, end of April, the double digging was mainly done. I think about six of the beds have been done out of eight by this point. And Fred Howson and his colleague Graham had come and put the metal edging in. Um, so it was beginning, beginning to take shape here. And I was actually beginning to think, wow, so we're going to put some plants in at some point. And I think there's probably a few people at the back here who can remember my childish excitement on May the 11th when I actually got to go out there and plant some, some plants into the, into the ground. So we started with the oncology bed. It was a very happy day. You can still see the guys at the end double digging bed seven. Um, and by the end of, of this day, May, uh, at least the oncology bed was partly planted up. Um, and a big thank you must go at this point to all of uh, Team Hardy who have worked really hard all summer to nurture this and it really does look like part of the garden now. It, you know, when you walk around you wouldn't really appreciate that it has you know, happened this year. It looks like it's really been there you know, for many years and it hopefully should only get better. So now I want to tell you about some of the plants, why we've really picked them, what are the stories behind those plants. Um, and I should at this point now apologise for the chemical structures. Um, if you don't understand them, I'm, I could give you chapter and verse afterwards, but I'm not going to explain what they're there for now. Just to really give you an idea of the complexity or otherwise of some of the structures that are involved and that they're really intricate and, if you're a nerdy chemist like me, interesting kind of structures. So the first bed, and um, I'm working uh, here from the most northerly bed down to the most southerly, so if you do go into the garden um, in the coming weeks, you'll be able to see uh, where all these beds are. Um, so one of the oldest um, drugs that's still used today is digitoxin and this is used for the treatment of atrial fibrillation and um, congestive heart failure and we owe its discovery, its existence to a gentleman called William Withering. Now two years ago in one of these evening lecture series, um, a gentleman from Jeff Aronson did an excellent lecture on William Withering and the history of Fox Love use. so I'm not going to talk too much about it. But in the 1770s, William Withering, who was a physician in Birmingham, came across the case of a lady who was being treated by a kind of herbal concoction for dropsy, which was a heart condition. Um, and he set about trying to work out why, to his utter surprise, she was actually cured and made a lot better by taking this herbal remedy. And he finally realised that it was thanks to the digitalis purpurea, the common purple foxglove, that there was something in that plant that was very efficacious for treating her heart condition. And indeed, he was right. It wasn't until, I think, the 1930s that this molecule was isolated and the structure elucidated. Um, this is a steroid skeleton here, and then you have these sugars kind of dangling off and decorating it. Now, mainly today, the um, use of digitoxin has been superseded by the use of digoxin, which is the molecule um, up here. I'll take uh, any guesses later as to how the structures differ, um, but they do differ. Uh, digoxin is slightly more efficacious, and it's also cleared by the body faster, so it's a much safer drug. Um, it's isolated from a different foxglove species, the woolly foxglove, or digitalis lanata, and that plant is farmed on a commercial scale in countries like Holland, and the, the drug isolated directly from the plant. These kind of molecules can be synthesised from scratch in a chemical laboratory, but not in a kind of commercially viable manner. It's also growing on the cardiology beds is barley. Um, now, in the 1930s, there were some scientists working on mutant strains of barley, 
and they isolated a molecule uh, from, from these strains of barley and they called it guamine and they worked out a molecular formula with the analytical instrumentation that they had available to them at the time they could get a mass and, and hence a molecular formula so they proposed a structure and they set about making it and when they made it, they thought, well, now, you know, it's got the same mass, that's great. How else can we, you know, test what we've made? And one of the only other methods available to them at the time was really just to taste it. They, I mean, they had a bit of a sniff, didn't really find any difference, and then they tasted it. Now, the molecule they'd isolated from barley didn't really do anything to them. But the molecule they'd made made their tongue go numb. So they've clearly not made the same molecule. They'd actually made this molecule, isogramine. It was later uh, worked out that the structure that, that had come from the, the plant was this molecule. But it set them thinking, well, if that you know, numbs my tongue a bit, there's probably some uses for this. You, know, you can imagine how painful uh, tooth extraction is without any kind of local anaesthetic. And so a whole series, a whole kind of sequence of, of molecules were made and they gradually modified the structure bit by bit and eventually they ended up with this molecule here, lidocaine. Um, for anyone that wants to know, you can see that it's got the same kind of six-membered ring here, a nitrogen in the right kind of place and then um, the appropriate number of carbon atoms where you've got another nitrogen that mimics this one. Yeah, and lidocaine also is known as lignocaine or xylocaine, and that's used as a very effective dental anaesthetic. So why have I put it on the cardiology bed? <laughs> um, it's also, or has been used, and still is used today in rare cases, I believe, when people have heart attacks as an emergency treatment, and it, moderate, it modifies the heartbeat to, um, to kind of slow it down and get the heart back into a sensible rhythm. So it does have an important use um, treating heart conditions. But it is one of the examples of plants that we will that we do have growing on um, another bed, the bed that has all the painkillers as well. And so on to the uh, cancer treatment area. Taxus brevifolia is the Pacific U. And in the 1960s there was a major collection program going on in, in the United States and North America, trying to collect lots of different samples of plants to then extract the active, or to, to extract anything interesting from them and test them for anti-cancer activity. At the time, the same people were also looking for potential sources of plant steroids, and we'll hear more about that later. So in 1962, some samples from this Pacific view were, were um, uh, isolated, they were extracted, they were tested, and they found some anti-cancer activity. It took them until 1966, so four years, to actually then isolate the actual molecule that was responsible for the anti-cancer activity, and another five years before they could work out what the structure was. And this is the structure. The molecule was originally called Taxol, um, because it came from a taxis and they were convinced it had at least one alcohol functionality. Uh, and in fact, it's got, well, three or four and several that have other bits on, on the alcohol functionality. So they were right. Um, it's later, uh, the name has mainly changed to Paclitaxel, which has led to some confusion. I'll explain why it's still called, called Taxol uh, shortly. So... This, you know, we got to 1971 and they, they found it had some, you know, they knew it had some good activity against various different cancer cell lines. Not until 1979 did someone work out how it was working. And at that point, they realised, wow, this is a really interesting, novel method of, of action. We really should take this drug further. But the problem was the supply. These trees grow incredibly slowly. A typical tree with a trunk that has nine centimetre, um, a nine inch diameter, is about 125 years old. And you need roughly between three and six trees to treat one patient. So it's clearly not a sustainable source. And by the time all this, this work was going on, every year more and more collections were made of these trees. You know, huge amounts of bark were being stripped and the trees killed. 
and just you know vast tonnages of, of, of bark were collected to, to extract the active compound. So there was a lot of work going on to try and find alternative sources. So people screened lots of other types of species, they looked at other, other plants, related plants, and looked at other methods of making it as well. It is a molecule that's been made synthetically by a number of organic uh, synthetic chemists. But to make from scratch, it's just far too long since it's once again to be commercially viable. So eventually, um, some people found that the English or European new taxifacata, which is our oldest tree, um, the needles of which contain a very similar molecule uh, to this. In fact, they contain this portion here. And it was actually not that difficult to then semi-synthetically alter that to, to add on this chain here and make the drug that we wanted. So even today, a significant proportion of the paclitaxel that's used clinically comes from um, European nutrients and then is modified synthetically. But at the same time, some other scientists working for the US Department of Agriculture developed a method for taking some cells, some material from the bark, and culturing it in a laboratory setting, albeit now on a very large scale, and making um, the drug itself. Now, I had the pleasure uh, a couple of years ago to actually meet one of the ladies who, who did this work. I didn't actually realise it at the time. I, I met her, she seemed like a very nice person, she had a lovely garden, she took me on a tour around her garden, this is um, just outside Cornell in upstate New York. And, uh, when I started investigating this work, I found her name on a patent. I emailed her and said, wow, Donna, I didn't realise you know, that you, you had done this work. Can you tell me some more about it? And she wrote back, she was very gracious, and she said, and by the way, I'm, I'm sure I know what you're thinking. How much money did I make out of it? <laughs> well, the answer is not that much, but enough to keep me in my gardening habit. Well, I reckon, having seen her garden, that's quite a bit. <laughs> shells that are a waste byproduct of the food industry uh, in Italy every year. And they've started looking at what chemicals there are in the hazelnut shells, and they've found that this molecule and several others related to it are present in the hazelnut shells, and so they're now trying to develop a method to extract that successfully for use as a drug. So that's several different methods of making the taxol, the paclitaxel that's used on the market today. Just last week there was a paper published in Science, or Nature Science I think, um, talking about a way of making a precursor to this molecule um, in a bacteria. So some scientists in the US at, at MIT have engineered the bacteria to overproduce um, the basic um, this kind of portion of it, but just the hydrocarbon chain without any of the oxygen functionality. <coughs> They've now started piece by piece putting in the, the required pathway to put in all those oxygen functionalities, and I think it's going to be actually very challenging. They've done the easy part. <laughs> so I don't think it's going to be that soon that, that this drug is made in a microbe, that maybe one day. Now I've kind of glossed over the fact that there was a bit of a hiatus. I haven't yet told you when Taxol actually made it to the market. So I said in 1979 the uh, mode of action was established. Um, it wasn't until then 1984 that the first clinical trial was started, but there was still a major supply issue at that point. But what happened in those intervening five years was that they just could not get this compound to dissolve in anything. Not anything. It was like brick dust. And if you want it to be a successful drug, if you want something to be a successful drug, then you really need it to uh, dissolve. If it's in a tablet form, it's got to dissolve in your, in your, your gut. Um, but better for a cancer drug, you really want it to be in solution so that you can deliver it um, intravenously. And they couldn't make it dissolve in anything. And they resorted to the absolute end of the line solvent, which is something called cremophore. And cremophore is made up of um, 
a derivative of this molecule here, ricinoleic acid. And ricinoleic acid, bit of a mouthful, forms 90% of castor oil. And castor oil comes from the castor oil plant, Ricinus communis. So if it wasn't for this plant, we wouldn't actually have paclitaxel used as a cancer drug today. So I think it's really good that another plant came to the rescue. And so I said I'd explain why we have this confusion between Taxol and Paclitaxel. Taxol is the name that the company Gristol-Myers Squibb registered and trademarked as their particular formulation that was Paclitaxel in Premafor. So if you see Taxol, trademark Taxol used, that is the formulation with Premafor. There are now other formulations um, that are actually safer and better, but I don't like to too much about that because they don't involve plants. Um, so some of the other plants we have growing on the oncology bed um, include a couple of different podophyllum species as well as this conifer juniper, Juniperus virginiana. And both these plants in totally different parts of the um, plant world, one conifer, one um, angiosperm, both make this same molecule here, podophyllotoxin. Now this molecule itself is too toxic to be used as a, a cancer drug. It is used topically to treat warts, but several companies have made derivatives that are more potent and safer. So there's these three compounds here that are used to treat a range of different cancers. And then onto one of the more beautiful plants, um, I think, on the medicinal area, but it is also growing in our lily house and the palm house. So it's been outside for the summer, um, but through the winter you'll also be able to see this inside in the glass houses. Now in the 1950s, um, there was a physician working in Jamaica who observed local people making this plant into a tea and using that tea to treat people with diabetes. And he had a brother who was a research scientist working in Canada, and so he sent him some samples of this plant and said, oh, you know, maybe this is the next blockbuster drug. You should investigate this, see what you can find in it that might you know, be really good for treating diabetes. And they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find any significant anti-diabetic activity. But what they did find were uh, these two molecules here, um, and they're really potent um, anti-cancer compounds. The plant originated in Madagascar, but it's found growing very widespread in many different tropical areas, and it's also farmed in a lot of places like Texas um, and so on. And the only source of, of these drugs today still is directly from the plant. Once again, they have been made synthetically, but just too complex a structure to try and, and make that a, a commercially viable synthesis. Now this, um, this is the more potent uh, compound and the more clinically useful, but it's found in much smaller quantities than this, this compound in the plants, but chemists have devised a method for taking this molecule and oxidising this methyl group here to this functionality which is called an aldehyde. So the, the complex part of the structure is made by a plant and then for some of the material that's used clinically, the final little tweak is a chemical step in, in a pilot plant or a, a plant in the lab. And this was a, a plant, Campsica acuminata, which is also known as the happy tree, that was, when, when I uh, had the really hard task of going on holiday to China last year, um, was something that I was desperate to see growing in China. It's from China originally, and I was determined that this plant would feature in the medicinal plant collection here. Now, I, I haven't brought it back from China, I have to say that now. You know, I, I saw it growing and, and I took photos, but I then found a source actually at Chelsea Physic Garden. They had, had one of these um, trees growing outside in their garden. And last, last October, I think it was, I came back on the train with a bag full of cuttings from them and we now have um, one of these plants growing just outside the palm house doors in the corridor. 
we made a decision not to grow it outside on the um, on the beds because it's not completely hardy in this country. It has grown successfully um, down in Cornwall, but even last winter really um, did for the plants growing in Cornwall. So we thought well, we'll be pragmatic. We'll get one established in, inside in the glass houses, and then we can experiment. We can take some more cuttings. We can maybe plant it out, you know, temporarily through the summer months, and, and see what happens. It's reasonably fast growing cuttings. You know, this kind of size last October. It's now about this high. So. Um, so why do we have it? Um, this molecule here, Campsthesin, was isolated from it by the same people that isolated Paclitaxel and at just about the same time by the same team of people. But Campsthesin was too toxic to be used on its own and once again it was kind of put to one side but someone was interested enough to try and work out how it was working in the body and so they did some experiments, they found out how it worked and once again it was another new mode of action and they thought, well that, you know, that's worth investigating some more. So at that point, two separate pharmaceutical companies took up the reins of this project and Pfizer and GSK have separately um, developed these two drugs. So you can see that, that most of the structure is similar and then they've added on this portion here or modified this portion here. Now this is another molecule that comes from a range of different plants. Not only does it come from Campstica acuminata, it comes from a tree called Nothopidites fetida. And that is another kind of tropical tree that's grown um, in, in a range of countries and it's mainly now that Campstica in itself is isolated from Nothopidites fetida. Nothopidites fetida. Um, and then all of that material is supplied to the pharmaceutical companies and they convert it into these two drugs. Now, of all of the top-selling um, anti-cancer drugs, um, Irinotecan and an analogue of Paclitaxel called Dostaxel are, are right up there amongst the very best-selling drugs. And they're drugs that are used as kind of gold standards when people do new research. I was speaking to a lady last week who works up in Headington in the Cancer Research Centre up there and she's investigating um, a kind of um, immuno immunological approach to cancer treatment and when she does her work she compares what she's doing with three different compounds. One is this pattern, one's taxol and one is a renotecan. So it's used to treat people but it's also used for basic research because it's such a good molecule. Right, so now we're on to... Um, infectious diseases. So by infectious diseases, I mean diseases like malaria, um, HIV, AIDS, um, hepatitis, that, those kind of um, things. So I'm not going to tell you too much about um, this plant, Artemisia annua, and the drugs that come from it. Are, uh, and the molecule that's directly isolated is artemisinin, and these uh, molecules here are semi-synthetic derivatives that are also used as drugs. One of the future lectures in this series is going to be by a lady called um, Diana Bowles, um, and she's been working on developing um, strains of Artemisia annua that will grow in um, developing countries and produce high levels of Artemisia. So she'll tell the full story then. And so we move on to another couple of plants that, um, on the face of it, you think, why? Why are they on the same slide? We have this small uh, New Zealand um, kind of ground cover plant called Pymelia prostrata, which is in the Daphne family. Um, and then a tropical tree, Homolanthus nutans, which is in the Euphorbiaceae. And they both make this molecule. How that comes about, um, I'm not 100% sure. But lots of Euphorbiaceae plants make this make molecules with this kind of structure. Um, I haven't yet investigated enough about Daphne family plants to know if it's a very common substructure in their natural products. So this molecule was isolated from Pymelia in 1976, and some preliminary studies were carried out to see what kind of biological activity it had. And they concluded, well, it's not cancer-promoting, doesn't seem to really do anything anti-cancer, so we're not interested. You know, paper published, nothing more. 
And then in the early 80s, there was an ethnobotanist called Paul Cox who was working in Samoa, uh, which is where, where this tree grows. And he observed the locals making a tea from this plant and treating themselves for conditions like yellow fever and hepatitis. And he thought, well, you know, it really seems to be working. He, he saw the, the efficacy of, of what they were doing. And so he made contact with some other scientists in the United States and said, you know, I think this plant's worth investigating. So in the mid-80s, they isolated prostructin from this tree. And since then, he has signed um, with the Samoan government and the AIDS Research Alliance and uh, National Institutes of Health in the US an equitable profit-sharing agreement where they have agreed the American bodies to pay back 20% of any profits to the Samoan people if they make money out of using this. And they're planning to use this as, um, in the fight against AIDS. So most of the therapies on the market today for, for AIDS uh, antivirals, they you know, are there to kill the virus in the body. But it, it sits in these, these pools, these latent pools that are incredibly hard to flush out from the body. And so, so it, there's always this residual amount of the virus. But what this molecule does is flushes this, flushes it out into the into the system, so that the antivirals get to kill all of the all of the virus in the body. So they're really hopeful that this will, in the future, be a, a powerful uh, component of the treatment of, of HIV and AIDS. And I should say that um, we don't have any of this uh, growing at the garden. I made contact with Paul Cox to see if he would be willing to send seed or cuttings and they are keeping a very tight hold of all their material. It's not going anywhere. Um, but <laughs> this plant will hopefully by next year be out there growing um, in the medicinal beds. It's not there yet but we plan to have it. And so uh, we now have this range of uh, solanaceae plants, potato cami plants growing in the gastroenterology bed. They contain these molecules um, at the top here, which are known as tropane alkaloids. And I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail, but these <laughs> molecules have huge amounts of biological activity, mainly used as poisons. Um, some really colourful stories about how each of these molecules has been used to kill people, uh, including uh, Mrs. Crippen. Uh, she was killed... Uh, well, yeah, killed one of these where it went wrong and then her body was cut up. Um, but, but they have a really important uh, effect on the, on the body in a medicinal sense. The reason they're in the gastro, gastroenterology bed is because derivatives of them that don't cross the blood-brain barrier and so affect the central nervous system but just affect the peripheral nervous system are used often to treat uh, conditions like seasickness, but also irritable bowel uh, syndrome. Um, and particularly, uh, there's one other plant that's used commercially to grow the source of these drugs, and that's Dubrosia. Um, it's grown in Australia. And then the molecules extracted and converted into, into irritable bowel treatments, things like muscopan. Also in the gastroenterology bed, we have a number of different plants that are linked to the treatment of diabetes, um, an ever-growing problem, particularly in the, in the Western world. Now this um, small molecule here, which is an azer sugar, it's got a nitrogen in it, which makes it an azer sugar, um, is a bit of a mouthful to say, and I'm just going to call it by its abbreviation, which is DNJ. And it's found in a whole range of different plants, often in plants that have been used traditionally um, to make teas for the um, alleviation of, of um, diabetic symptoms or to prevent people from developing diabetes. And this actually has basis in science. So this molecule here does reduce um, postprandial levels of glucose in the system. And it's found in this plant here, Comelina communis, which is also known as the Asiatic dayflower, and the mulberry tree here. 
Um, Megalitol, you can see, is a slightly modified derivative of DNJ, and that is approved by the Drugs Administration in the USA for the treatment of, of type 2 diabetes. Uh, whereas Miglostat here is not used for the treatment of diabetes, it's used for the treatment of a condition called Gouch's disease and another um, disease called Neiman-Pickett disease. Um, and actually this molecule here uh, was largely developed by scientists working at this university in pharmacology. But what most people that have diabetes need is, is insulin. And originally, insulin, uh, the insulin that was used to treat people came from animal sources, from pigs and from cows. Pig insulin was particularly similar to human insulin, and, and so it was well tolerated. But then um, systems were developed to produce human recombinant insulin in bacteria like E. coli. Um, and that's where most of the, or all of the insulin that's used today comes from. But there's a company in Canada called Sembiosis who are using, using this plant here, Carthamus tinctorius, and genetically modifying it and using it as a factory to produce insulin. Um, it's in the early stages of being licensed. There are actually a huge number of different variations on insulin. Insulin isn't one molecule. Um, and they're developing their own versions um, using this plant as the factory. Um, and then this is just to show you the kind of equipment that might be used to extract the insulin from the plant. Um, and so we move on to the uh, kind of skin complaints area. And there's two plants that I just want to highlight briefly. Um, we have Amimagus, which looks beautiful when it's out there. And from Amimagus, that has historically been used, particularly in countries like Egypt, um, to treat conditions like psoriasis and vitiligo. This molecule was isolated, seralin, and today it's made synthetically, but it's still used as an oral treatment for people that suffer from those kind of skin conditions. And they take it orally, and then the areas affected on their skin have a, an ultraviolet light shone on it. And the, the compound, once it's in your system, sensitizes your skin to the, to the light and, and it helps to treat the skin condition. It can also be applied topically um, and then the light shone on, but it, but it is still used today. And then, just Timothy, because we haven't had enough euphorbias yet tonight, um, I thought I'd pick the, the most choice euphorbia, euphorbia peptis, the the plant that most of us just freak out as a weed from our gardens. <laughs> I know, okay. <laughs> and uh, why, is, why is that there? Well, there's an Australian company who, whose sole mission is, is to see this plant take over the world, I think. Um, and they've isolated from it uh, this compound here, uh, Ingenol Mebutate, which is another four-bowl compound, which I've already said is a very common substructure to be found in, in euphorbiaceae plants. And most of us historically would think that you know euphorbias have this nasty milky sap and we shouldn't get it on our skin. Um, you know, especially if the sun was was gonna um, shine and we're gonna just blister our skin and cause a horrible reaction. But people also use euphorbia sap to treat warts and so on. And this company um, have found that this drug, when applied as a, a gel, can be used to treat a condition called actinic keratosis, which is a kind of pre-cancerous skin condition. And it's in very late stages of clinical trials at the moment, and they're also investigating it for a number of other unrelated conditions. But it looks like it could be a really powerful molecule um, in, of the future. Um, so, then in the haematology bed, we have two kind of groups of plants. We have plants that are associated with this drug here, warfarin, um, and, and then plants that are used for blood typing, and I'll come to those in a second. So, in the 1920s, there was an epidemic of, of um, bleeding disease in cattle in the US. There had been a series of really wet summers, um, and the farmers were just, you know, almost destroyed, the cattle were dying, the hay was mouldy, and they didn't really know what to do. 
one day a gentleman in Wisconsin pitched up at a laboratory and he had a you know, litre of blood from his cow that had died that wouldn't clot and he had a 50 kilo sack of this mouldy hay and he kind of dumped it on someone's desk and said work it out. Um, work it out they did um, and eventually they realised that the hay and all of these parts shown at the bottom here would normally contain this molecule cumin but because of the microbial action going on in the hay that was mouldy um, this molecule was being converted to dicumerol and that was a really effective anticoagulant which is why the cattle were all hemorrhaging and dying. Um, someone decided to carry on the work and see if they could make an even more potent compound, you know, just, just for the sake of it, um, to kill rats with or, or something. And eventually they developed this. Now the, the person leading the work thought this is just way too toxic to ever be used for anything other than rat poison. Um, but his student thought, well, I think there might, you know, be a market for this, and he insisted on patenting it. And the organisation in Wisconsin that helped him to patent it was called the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, and that is why it's called Warfarin. So, I also already said that several plants are important for blood typing reagents. Um, and I won't go into this in, in any great detail, but most of them are fabacy plants. And you can isolate compounds called leptins, which are kind of uh, sugar-coated proteins. And they have different leptins will have different specificities for different blood types. And you can use these leptins as reagents to work out what kind of blood group people are. Um, and two of the ones, that, two of the plants that um, have these leptins in them that are used, um, gorse and this, um, other pea family climbing plant, Fitching Union Juga. Um, I want to say at this point a big thank you to gentlemen from Inverclyde Biologicals who actually sent seed um, of the Fitching Union Juga. Um, he had grown this in his garden and was, was growing it to isolate the seed so that he could then isolate the lectins from it. Um, and he helped a lot with, with this area um, of the garden. So it's about that time of night where you really need a painkiller or two, got a bit of a headache, <laughs> been listening to me for nearly an hour. Um, and the most commonly used painkiller um, still, I think, today is aspirin. And aspirin, we owe the existence of that to two plants, really. Most people think immediately of willow um, and maybe Edmund Stone and how he chewed on a bit of bark accidentally. How you chew on bark accidentally, I've never quite worked out. Um, and realised that it had this pain-killing properties. And eventually, um, salicin was isolated from willow. What's maybe slightly less well-known is that salicylic acid itself, which is just a portion of this molecule and oxidised here, was first isolated not from willow, but from uh, meadowsweet philopendula ulmaria. But at the time that it was isolated, philopendula was called spirea. And then some other chemists in Germany realised that both these molecules have fairly nasty side effects on the, the stomach lining um, by irritating it, and they really needed a safe alternative as a painkiller. And so they modified the structure, um, put this acetyl group on, and thought, well, what should we call it? Well, I suppose we could call it acetylated something, spirea whatever, no, we're German, so let's call it in on the end. And they came up with aspirin. <laughs> um, now, this is a molecule that was actually in the news just last week, galanthamine, which is the treatment for Alzheimer's. Um, it was originally isolated from snowdrops um, in the kind of Caucasus area of Eastern Europe. And apparently people um, in that area were observed rubbing snowdrop bulbs on their heads to alleviate headaches and various other conditions. And it, in the 1930s, um, and then on from then, this molecule was actually isolated and used to treat conditions or to, to treat symptoms of poliomyelitis and myasthenia gravis. Um, but since, um, since then, it's been developed as a treatment for Alzheimer's. And the reason it was in the news last week is because um, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, NICE, have now um, agreed that 
that and a number of other Alzheimer's drugs can be used in mild to moderate Alzheimer's um, to treat those patients as well as just for moderate to severe Alzheimer's patients. So the market, the potential market for this drug has, has increased enormously just in the last week. So it's actually found in a number of other um, plants in the Amaryllidaceae. And in Bulgaria, um, leucogium is the predominant source. Most of the uh, drug that's used in that, that country and surrounding countries comes from leucogium that's farmed. Um, a lot of the drug supply in this country comes from uh, Narcissus, in particular the Carlton uh, cultivar. Um, and in China, it's um, a red spider lily called Lycoris radiata. So it really depends on where you are in the world as to where your um, supply of lanthanine has come from. Some is synthetically made now, and it's very comparable in cost to the supplies from plants. So both sources are on the market. Um, and this I've just taken from the BBC website. There was a headline um, about a company in Wales called Alzheim who now say they need to really expand, they can expand the amount of land that they devote to cultivating the narcissus to, to provide bigger supplies of, of this drug molecule since the news last week. And so, you'll be deciding on to the last area. Um, Lots of these plants are here because they, we owe the existence of a number of really important asthma drugs to, to these plants. So in the 1940s, um, people had started to realise that, that there were a number of really important uh, steroidal hormones in the body. And there was a very small company set up in Mexico called Hormone Laboratories. And they were devoted to supplying hormones that they'd extracted from animal sources. Uh, at the same time, in North America, there's a, a chemist called uh, Marker who was investigating steroids that he could extract from plants. And he'd isolated a molecule from Smilax sarsaparilla and had developed a way to convert that steroid into um, progesterone, which is a, a um, animal or human uh, type steroid and he started touting his wares to big pharmaceutical companies in the US and they also were not interested I don't know why you want to do that for what you know why, why do we care and so he also at the same time realized well this isn't a really very good source of this kind of compound it's just the roots of this particular plant I'm not going to be able to get a very large quantity of this if I want to make this a commercially viable process so he set off to Mexico and he found the um, wild Mexican yam and he isolated a compound from that called diosgenin and developed um, similar chemistry to make these kind of human type steroid or hormones. And at the same time he became aware of this small American company and he went to see, the, sorry, small Mexican company, he went to see them and they said, oh yes, we are interested. So together they formed a new company which was called Syntex and they developed um, this route from diosgenin to cortisone. And in 1951, there was a big press conference held and all these men in suits sat around a table and there was this huge pile of wild yam on the table and they announced their landmark synthesis and it really was, you know, absolutely landmark at the time. They'd made from a plant source an, an animal hormone, a human hormone. And then they realised that maybe the diosphere wasn't going to be the ultimate source and they needed to find a, another source of, of plant, the plant material. And they found that this agave sizolana was a really good source of this molecule here, hycogenin. And then they modified the chemistry and realised they could do the same kind of uh, degradation from it to, to break this ring up to make this kind of ring system here. And they licensed that, that chemistry uh, to Glaxo the Glaxo Group Research, and all these asthma drugs um, owe their existence to that original chemistry. Um, if it wasn't for them, uh, if it wasn't for the original plant-to-human to hormone type chemistry, we wouldn't have the kind of blockbuster asthma drugs that we have today. But interestingly, uh, at the same time, you know, this company Syntex, they'd, so they'd sold their process to Glaxo. Glaxo were off on the path of asthma drugs. 
they thought, well, we're, you know, we're more about hormones and things. What, what are we going to do with this? And um, a chemist called Carl Drassi joined the company, and he has now become known as the father of the pill. And they basically developed a number of derivatives um, from progesterone, which they were at the time marketing as a kind of miscarriage prevention drug. And they realised that if they modified it, they could actually prevent ovulation. And from there, so was the whole of the um, contraceptive uh, pill history. So it wasn't until the 1960s that, that it was first available. And since then, you know, it really has, I think, changed the course of, of human history. Carl Jurassi now um, has kind of quit his chemistry life and he writes science, what he calls science in fiction books, um, which are kind of an interesting read. <laughs> so I just really wanted to wrap up by just re-emphasising how similar some of the structures are that we get from a whole range of different plants. Um, and it can be used either as... Um, as hormones, hormone mimics, as asthma drugs, or even as heart, um, heart drugs. And they've still got the same steroid structure. And really just summarised by saying, you know, it really has just been a glimpse into the plants that we have growing out there. Um, there's lots more stories to find out about. Um, I hope, hope you will like to find out more over the coming months. Hopefully, or very soon, there'll be a, a book for telling all these stories with all this information in available at the ticket office. Um, and just come in the garden and find out more. Thank you. Mm -hmm.